Welcome to Bench Talk, the week in science. My name is Dave Robinson. And I'm Ashley Best. You're listening to WFMP Louisville 106.5 FM. This show's about bringing science to the people. We'll be bringing you weekly updates on new research that is important to all of us and celebrating evidence-based policy. We've scoured the library stacks for interesting articles, climbed the hill to stay informed on science policy, and performed some experiments of our own. We're here as a conduit of all things science, so let's get started. Well, it's happened again. Yet another lawsuit against the Monsanto Chemical Company, which is now owned by Bayer, was recently decided against Monsanto. This is the third case where Monsanto has lost the lawsuit by people who have contracted non-Hodgkin lymphoma after using Monsanto's weed killer called Roundup. Now, lymphoma is cancer of the lymphocytes, which basically includes the T-cells, the B-cells, the natural killer cells. That's our immune system. In the beginning, it shows up in the lymph nodes, but it can spread to other parts of the body too. Non-Hodgkin lymphoma is one of the most common cancers in the United States. It will strike about 74,000 people this year and every year, and each of us has about a 2% chance of contracting the disease at some point in our lives. But it mostly shows up in people who are 65 years of age or older. I think the biggest problem with non-Hodgkin lymphoma is that the patient's immune system doesn't work properly anymore and people are more susceptible to infection. But it does also affect the bone marrow. and That's where red blood cells and platelets are produced. So that system's going to be affected too. Now, the first successful court case against Monsanto was decided in August of 2018, where a groundskeeper at a California school contracted non-Hodgkin lymphoma after using Roundup for years. And by the way, I'm just going to refer to non-Hodgkin lymphoma as NHL from now on, since that's what everybody else does. Now, this groundkeeper was originally awarded $289 million in damages from Monsanto, but that amount was later reduced to $78 million and is still going through appeal by the company. The second case was in March of 2019, when a California man who also contracted NHL after using Roundup won an award of $80 million against Monsanto. The federal jury found unanimously that this herbicide Roundup was, quote, a substantial factor in causing the man's cancer. Now, some of these lawsuits are also claiming that Monsanto covered up the evidence about the safety of this weed killer. The third case was just decided on May 14, 2019, where a married couple in their 70s were diagnosed with NHL after using Roundup since 1975. Their award was the biggest so far, $2 billion with a B. Actually, it was $2,055,000,000. Wow. Now, after they lost the first case, Monsanto just claimed that it was sort of a fluke, that the jury didn't really understand the science, they didn't really look at the science fairly. But that argument got weaker after losing the second case. And now that they've lost three cases in a row, and this last one worth $2 billion, 
it's looking bad for Monsanto slash Bayer. And there are now some 13,000 other plaintiffs who are also filing lawsuits against Monsanto about this issue. And this number is going to grow because I even see commercials on TV now by law firms looking for more people with NHL who have been exposed to glyphosate in the past. There's going to be a lot more lawsuits in the future. Now, I can tell you the scientific literature about the possibility of a link between non-Hodgkin lymphoma and exposure to Roundup, is it's mixed. It's contradictory. There are numerous papers published on this topic, but the conclusions are not easy to interpret. But today I want to tell you about a new paper. It just came out in February of 2019 that might tip the scales against Monsanto. But first, a little history about the research. The World Health Organization published a study in 2015 that was definitely negative regarding the biosafety of Roundup. The research was conducted by an independent agency located in France, and it was a meta-analysis, which means that they actually didn't do research in the laboratory themselves, but rather they read and evaluated other research papers on this topic that were performed and published by other scientists. And they focused on the main active ingredient of Roundup, which is called glyphosate. Now, glyphosate is a small synthetic molecule, and when it's sprayed on a plant, the plant takes it up and readily transports it down to the roots and to the growing leaves. This chemical interferes with the natural enzymatic pathway in plants that is responsible for making the aromatic amino acids. We're talking phenylalanine, tyrosine, tryptophan. These are essential amino acids, so the plant really needs them. And of course, we need them too, actually. Now, humans and other mammals do not possess this specific enzymatic pathway that you find in plants. So that's one reason why it was thought that glyphosate wasn't really going to be dangerous to people. So glyphosate stops the growth of plants really quickly, but it does take a few days for it to get transported enough around the plant to make the plant turn yellow and then die. Now Roundup entered the market back in 1974, and it was immediately thought of as some sort of a miracle herbicide, if there can be such a thing. What's so great about Roundup? Well, it's easy to apply. It can just be sprayed on the plant. It's a chemical that can be mixed up ahead of time so household consumers can just go to the local garden store and purchase it already made. It's relatively fast acting. You can see results in three hours. It's extremely effective, which means that it typically works just after one application and it kills the plant down to its roots. It's a very broad spectrum herbicide, so it will kill just about anything if you play around with the concentration. It's not as persistent in the environment as other chemicals because the sun and the soil breaks it down pretty quickly. The half-life of glyphosate is 40 days. And Roundup is rainproof. So as long as it can stay on the plant for at least 10 minutes before it rains, it'll kill that plant. And finally, Roundup is not as immediately toxic as other herbicides. I used to use an herbicide called Paraquat. Oh my gosh, Paraquat is really toxic stuff. There was a case in Australia a couple years ago. Someone had put Paraquat into an old Coca-Cola bottle. And someone else came along and took a swig of it, thinking it was soda. And they died soon afterwards. There's no antidote for Paraquat. 2,000 people a year commit suicide by drinking Paraquat. 
But in the case of Roundup, in terms of the immediate response, it's just not that bad. It can cause skin irritations if you're exposed. It can cause diarrhea or vomiting if you consume it. Now, that's in the short term. Of course, this question of the link between glyphosate and non-Hodgkin lymphoma, that's a long-term situation. It takes years to develop cancer. And by the way, there's also some evidence in cell cultures that glyphosate is an endocrine disruptor, which means that it alters the concentrations of hormones in our body. Now, don't go changing the radio dial just because you think this is some sort of a commercial for Roundup, because it's not. I just want everyone to realize how popular Roundup is. Of all the weed-killing chemicals that are currently on the market, glyphosate is by far the most popular. I found a report by the EPA showing that Roundup is the biggest seller in the United States. The second most popular herbicide is called atrazine, and Atrazine is a pre-emergent herbicide that's applied to a lot of lawns and golf courses to prevent weeds like dandelions from germinating. Well, there is four times more Roundup sold in the United States than there is atrazine, which is the second most popular herbicide. It's been calculated that 1.8 million tons of Roundup has been applied in the United States since it was first sold in 1974. Farmers use it to get rid of weeds in their fields. Homeowners use it to spot spray weeds in their gardens, and they do have to spot spray because if that chemical accidentally gets on their bushes, trees, or flowers that they want, it'll kill them. And Roundup is also used a lot to get rid of weeds that are growing in the cracks of sidewalks and parking lots. In a former life, I worked overseas on a plant breeding project in a Middle Eastern country called the Yemen Arab Republic. This was back in 1979. And I remember driving out in the middle of the desert to visit with small farmers around the country. I didn't speak very much Arabic, so I had to have an interpreter with me. And our objective on these extension trips was to collect germplasm and to learn more about the problems that farmers were having. And I remember the farmer would be talking to the interpreter. I really wouldn't understand what they were discussing. And then all of a sudden, I would hear a word of English. That word was Roundup. So even though Yemen was this low-income country and we were out there in the middle of nowhere, almost every farmer we met knew about Roundup and they wanted some. And I can't tell you how many times I've been to the home of a progressive activist or an environmentalist and the like, and I find out that they have a bottle of Roundup in their garage. That stuff really works. And I know of at least two nature conservancy sites where the land manager is using Roundup. In both cases, it's a situation where there's a problem with a perennial invasive weed. Maybe it's a problem with euonymus, maybe it's honeysuckle, maybe it's invasive vinca, but the Nature Conservancy is using Roundup to try to get rid of it. It's basically a cost-benefit analysis. The cost of using Roundup is less than the cost of not using it. If you don't control those weeds, the weed can become to dominate the entire region and outcompete the native plant species. Well, this 2015 World Health Organization paper concluded that while there was only, quote, limited evidence, unquote, that glyphosate causes cancer in humans, they said that there was, quote, sufficient evidence, quote, that it causes cancer in animals. They ended up placing glyphosate on their list of quote, probably carcinogenic chemicals, unquote. I remember when this report came out. 
it garnered a lot of attention because the mainstream opinion at the time was that Roundup was safe. And for the World Health Organization to say that it was probably carcinogenic? Hooey, that really got some publicity. I remember attending a lecture decades ago when a defender of Roundup said that you could probably drink the stuff right out of the bottle and not cause a problem. But since I've heard about this research, I hope no one took him up on that. Now, this WHO report, that's really what instigated all of these lawsuits against Monsanto that we're seeing right now. Well, in response to the WHO claims, the United States Environmental Protection Agency, the EPA, they published their own report the next year, 2016. This was also a meta-analysis and ended up being 224 pages long. They evaluated more than 160 different articles or reports about the carcinogenic potential of glyphosate. Again, that's the active ingredient of Roundup. A lot of the papers that the EPA looked at were about possible correlations between the NHL disease versus the relative level of exposure that people had to glyphosate. So this involved a lot of farmers and farm workers because that's who uses a lot of Roundup. Some of the papers, though, involved feeding trials of laboratory mice or rats, and then some involved exposing isolated animal tissue growing on artificial media like petri dishes. And then the fourth type of research papers the EPA looked at were about whether glyphosate directly causes DNA mutation. That's important because cancer is the result of DNA mutations. And what was the bottom line from the EPA report? they found no consistent relationship between glyphosate exposure and cancer, and that includes NHL. Now, some of the research papers they reviewed did report a positive correlation between glyphosate and cancer, but the EPA concluded that the studies were either poorly done, or they didn't have the proper experimental controls, or they didn't take into account that people who work on farms are exposed to other agricultural pesticides, not just Roundup, but insecticides too. It's just they always seem to find something wrong with those papers that indicated that glyphosate causes cancer. So that was in 2016. Then in October 2017, Reporters working for the Reuters news agency examined an earlier draft of that older WHO report. Remember the one that was fairly negative about the safety of glyphosate? They found that there had been changes made to the WHO report prior to being published. The changes appeared to be made in the section about animal effects. That's where they finally claimed that there was, quote, sufficient evidence for a link to cancer. Reuters said, quote, one effect of the changes to the draft reviewed by Reuters in a comparison with the published report was a removal of multiple scientists' conclusions that their studies had found no link between glyphosate and cancer in laboratory animals, unquote. Reuters also claimed that there is some last-minute reanalysis of the data to make a stronger case against glyphosate and thus round up. So did World Health Organization administrators alter their report to make glyphosate seem worse than it actually is? Oh my gosh, what are we supposed to think about these contradictory stories? When you look at these analyses, it's basically the EPA versus the WHO, you know, it's just so confusing. But just four months ago, we're talking February 10, 2019, another meta-analysis was published about the relationship between exposure to glyphosate and non-Hodgkin lymphoma. 
This one is published in the journal called Mutations Research and was written by public health experts at University of California at Berkeley, University of Washington, and Mount Sinai Hospital in New York City. Now, these authors had access to new data for their meta-analysis. Specifically, this new data was a paper published in 2018 where the authors had access to data about 45,000 licensed pesticide applicators. These would have been farmers, farm workers, landscape workers. But these applicators had used glyphosate in either North Carolina or Iowa. And they basically determined how many days each of the applicators actually used glyphosate versus the incidence of cancer in each person. Now, this 2018 paper did not find a link between glyphosate and any cancers, including NHL. But this February paper took a different approach in analyzing that same data. They tried to take into account the levels and duration of exposure to glyphosate rather than just whether they were exposed or not. They also considered the latency period, meaning that they took into account the time it takes after exposure for tumors to actually form. And I'll just tell you right now what they concluded. They did find a link. They actually called it, quote, a compelling link between exposure to glyphosate and NHL. The authors of this 2019 paper also point out another potentially major source of exposure to glyphosate that might not have been considered by past researchers. It's called green burndown. And green burndown is when farmers spray glyphosate on their crops just a little bit of time before the end of the growing season. I think the main reason farmers do this is to kill the still green weeds that might be grown in the field at harvest time. The herbicide causes the weed leaves to dry up quickly so that the crop could be harvested earlier. Weeds foul up the harvesting combine a lot more if the stems and leaves are still moist. Another advantage to green burndown is to make the stems and leaves of the actual crop plant dry down too. This makes harvest more efficient also. Now the crops where this burndown technique is used is mostly wheat, barley, and beans but I'm having a hard time finding out exactly how prevalent the practice actually is. One wheat growers group says that it's only 3% of the wheat farmers that are spraying their crop with Roundup that late in the season. But according to EcoWatch, farmers and millers who buy the grain from farmers have a no-ask, no-tell policy. So there really is no knowing how prevalent this practice really is. But it's relevant to us, the consumer, because this practice could cause our food to contain larger quantities of glyphosate, especially when you think about that we're talking about wheat here. And wheat is such an important component of our daily diet. This burndown application of glyphosate occurs about a week before the grain is harvested, which means that the amount of herbicide residues in the seeds could be relatively high. The Roundup might be directly sprayed on the wheat spikes, but if not, if any of the wheat plants are still green when this herbicide is sprayed, the leaves might take it up and transport that herbicide to the seed-producing flowers. I can tell you that over the last 10-15 years, the EPA has increased the level of glyphosate that they allow on the crops we eat. So, for instance, in 1999, the EPA only allowed up to 5 parts per million glyphosate on wheat that's sold on the market. But that tolerance level now is 30 parts per million. So that's an increase from 5 parts per million to 30 that's now allowed on wheat. 
In soybeans, the government has doubled the glyphosate level that they tolerate. It was 20 parts per million in 1999, but it's 40 parts per million now. So it makes you wonder whether the EPA lowered its standards about how much glyphosate they allow on our food because more of it was showing up on that food? Or did they lower their standards when they realized that it was safer than they originally thought? I don't know the thinking behind this change in standards. Anyway, taking all this into account, more data, a new way of analyzing it, and the realization that our exposure to glyphosate might be more now than it used to be, led to the authors in this February 19 paper to say, quote, Overall, in accordance with evidence from experimental animal and mechanistic studies, our current meta-analysis of human epidemiological studies suggests a compelling link between exposures to glyphosate-based herbicides and increased risk for non-Hodgkin lymphoma, unquote. These authors also reviewed the literature about the cellular or physiological responses in mammals to glyphosate, and they summarized the potential mechanisms of action. So there's evidence that glyphosate alters the immune system in our body, possibly by altering our gut microbiome, but maybe by influencing our cytokine levels. There's also experimental evidence for glyphosate interfering with our production of sex hormones, And there's also evidence that it could cause breaks in our DNA or induce chromosomal aberrations. Glyphosate might also be inducing oxidative stress in the body. Oxidative stress is when there's an imbalance between the amount of free radicals we have in the cell versus the amount of antioxidants there is. Free radicals occur when an atom or a molecule has unpaired electrons in its orbitals. These kinds of molecules are very reactive, and they can cause a lot of damage to our proteins, our membranes, our DNA, etc. So glyphosate could be interfering with that oxidative stress process, too. So anyway, where are we now? What should we think about the safety of Roundup? Well, I don't know. I'm not an expert, and I don't have the time to spend weeks poring over all of this data But it does seem to me that the argument by Monsanto, which is now owned by Bayer, and the federal government, which might be influenced by Bayer, that argument that Roundup herbicide does not cause cancer, it's getting weaker. This most recent publication reports that there is a compelling link between Roundup and non-Hodgkin lymphoma and the fact that three different juries have now decided against Monsanto is not helping the case for Roundup. I've served on a trial jury myself, and so I know how seriously jurors take that responsibility. There is a huge amount of information out there about the medical consequences of exposure to glyphosate. And if they looked at it thoroughly enough to hand down decisions worth $80 million, $239 million, and just last month, $2 billion, they must have really thought that was convincing evidence. And I must not be the only person who sees the writing on the wall. I recently checked the stock exchange prices for shares of Monsanto and calculated that the value of a share has dropped more than 41% in the last 12 months. Bayer purchased the Monsanto company last year for the price of $63 billion. But I've read that the value of the company has already dropped $34 billion, which means it's dropped by half of the purchasing price. 
I'll let you know if I hear anything else. <laughs> now, much of the research that was discussed in that last story on the association of glyphosate exposure and cancer was epidemiological which means that the researchers were looking at correlations between two factors, the incidence of cancer in people and the amount of exposure to the herbicide Roundup. This might be a good time to discuss statistics for a bit. The paper we just discussed involved a statistical approach called correlation analysis. That's what researchers do when they want to explore whether two factors change in unison with one another, For instance, there's a correlation between the amount of sunlight and temperature. That's because the sun radiates heat. Now, sometimes the correlation is positive, like taller people tend to weigh more. And sometimes it's negative, like the higher you climb a mountain, the lower the temperature. But I'm sure you already know, just because there's a correlation between two things doesn't mean that one thing actually causes the other. Statisticians are fond of saying correlation does not imply causation. But unfortunately, we've run out of time for me to discuss this anymore right now. But look for a story about statistics on this show in the near future. Be nice and I'll tell you about the bald, hairy rule in Russia. See you next week. Bye-bye. Well, that's the show this week. Thank you for listening to Bench Talk, The Week in Science. We think the world is a fascinating place, and science is a good way to explore it. Science truly empowers all of us. If you want to learn more about the show, go to our Facebook page. Just search for Bench Talk, two words on Facebook. You can also email us at benchtalkradio at gmail.com. That's one word, benchtalkradio at gmail.com. Now, all of our episodes are podcasted on SoundCloud, so just visit the station's website at www.forwardradio.org and scroll down to the program archives. That's www.forwardradio.org to listen to any of our old episodes. If you live outside of the Louisville broadcast area, you can still listen to us on live stream at that same website, www.forwardradio.org This show is broadcast on WFMP LP 106.5 FM every Monday at 7.30 p.m. That's Eastern Time. 11.30 a.m. every Tuesday and 7.30 a.m. every Wednesday. Thank you for listening to WFMP LP 106.5 FM your grassroots, volunteer-run, listener-supported community radio station in Louisville, Kentucky, where there is still a little room for evidence-based rational analysis. Thank you.